Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our interviewer for this episode is Yosira Ornelas Van Horn, who goes by Yoshi. Yoshi is a first-generation college graduate and received a PhD in Environmental Health Sciences from the University of Arizona. She is currently a postdoctoral research associate in the Division of Environmental Health at the University of Southern California, where she received a Diversity Supplement Award from the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Her dissertation focused on working with the Dineh communities impacted by the Gold King mine spill to develop a community-based risk assessment and collaborated with community partners to ensure the dissemination of culturally appropriate results. Yoshi's research focuses on addressing unequal exposure to harmful contaminants that affect structurally marginalized communities. Our guest today is an enrolled member of the Navajo Nation, Dineh, and the executive director of the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals, ITEP. She is responsible for managing ITEP's work with Northern Arizona University, state and federal agencies, tribes, and Alaska Native villages. Before coming to ITEP, she served for over 10 years as Senior Assistant General Counsel to the Gila River Indian Community, where she assisted the community in implementing the historic Arizona Water Settlement Act and founded the community's renewable energy team. She earned her Juris Doctorate degree from St. Mary's University School of Law and a Master's in Environmental Law from Vermont Law School. She is licensed in Arizona and has practiced in state, district and federal courts. Meanwhile, she currently serves on several federal advisory committees such as the U.S. Environmental Protection Agencies and the Advisory Committee on the Sustained National Climate Assessment. It is an honor to welcome our guest, Ms. Anne-Marie Chischili. Welcome to the show, Anne-Marie and Yoshi. Thank you, Shashad, for the opportunity of interviewing Anne-Marie Chichili, a visionary Indigenous leader. Anne-Marie, your participation today at Atmospheric Tales podcast is highly acknowledged, and I am honored and thankful to be your interviewer. Thank you for the opportunity to come forward and just talk and share stories, and I admire both of your work, and I am grateful to share the stories of the Indigenous people that I serve and the tribes throughout the United States. I'm the executive director of the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals in Flagstaff, Arizona. These territories are sacred to 11 tribes, including my own, the Navajo Nation. I'm Dene, and I normally introduce myself according to my customs. Thank you for allowing me to introduce myself. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. As Sashad already mentioned, you have a JD with a focus on environmental law, and one of your main focus areas is working alongside Indigenous nations. From your introduction, you mentioned being Dene, and for those not familiar with the Dene, they are one of the Indigenous nations located in the Four Corners area of the United States. You also mentioned attending law school far away from the Navajo Nation. How was attending school so far away from home and what motivated you to study environmental law? And for those in the audience who are students and want to pursue a similar path, what advice or guidance would you give them? Thank you for that question. You know, I started very young. I had a grandmother, Catherine Wallace, who would 
constantly who was in the political arena. So I was raised around political issues with her. So I learned early on a lot of the environmental issues growing up. I'm also a coal miner's daughter. So my father and my uncles and many of my relatives were coal miners. So land issues were always, and natural resources issues were always a topic area around me growing up. So learning how to deal with those conflicts or tensions was something I was raised with and it imbued me to just look at what I could do as a female. And so as I continued to move forward, I had very strong female leaders, Catherine Wallace, my paternal grandmother, my maternal grandmother, Stella Chischilly, taught me how to plant corn, taught me how to herd sheep, you know, and then there's my mother who was always my backbone and always just encouraged me. She never said, you can't do anything. So when I told her very early on that I want to become an attorney, she was like, that's great. And she just encouraged me and supported me throughout it the entire journey. So I went to school undergrad in Tucson, then I went to school in San Antonio, then I went to school in Vermont. These are the days before internet, if you can believe it. I know my geography well, but I had to look up where Vermont was on the map again and say, where am I going? But in all those cases, I felt like I was guided there by ancestors. You know, I was guided and protected by my ancestors, even though it was extremely challenging and extremely lonely at times. I always felt like there was comfort when I asked for it. And I was able to make friends who were Indigenous and non-Indigenous to support me as well. So my journey, I felt like, even though it was always challenging, I always felt like no matter how hard it was, I always knew I would complete it. There was never a day when I said, there's no way I'm going to complete this, because I always thought about my ancestors' journey. My people endured the long walk. They were forced off their lands, forced to stay in an encampment with very little means and survive. And then they prayed and prayed and prayed and were able to go home to our homelands. So whenever I got in a really sticky situation, I always prayed and remembered their journey and remembered my grandmother's and mother's journey and said, I can do this. If they can do that, I can do this. So that's what got me through. When I got done with law school, the funny thing was I didn't know what to do afterwards. I had about a year and a half between there where I was really struggling to find a career. And then the environmental arena came up. And as soon as I concentrated on environmental issues, it just blossomed. Everything blossomed. So everything fell in order. And I was able to really concentrate on what I was passionate about, which were the environmental issues and then working with indigenous peoples or my tribes. So that's how I got here. So my encouraging words to the younger generation is there's going to be very, very hard times when you're going through your journey. You're going to feel like you hit a wall. But just remember, the blood that flows in your veins is powerful. You have ancestors that have endured tremendous amounts of feet to get you to where you are. And so don't give up day by day. There's always a new sunrise and you will make it through. Ask for help, pray and work hard. That's what I would recommend. Thank you so much for sharing those words, Anne-Marie. I can definitely relate to finding strength, especially through family. My family was all in Phoenix, and even though it wasn't as far as way traveling to Tucson as some of your experiences going to Texas and Vermont, you know, there's definitely times where taking on education so far away from home can be challenging, but I always found strength calling my family and connecting with them. And, you know, I was doing this 
getting education, you know, as a collective effort to honor family and definitely ancestors. So thank you for sharing that. The, the conversation you bring up about being guided through traditions being passed down, I want to kind of focus on in one of the papers that you are a co-author in, and this is called the Guidelines for Considering Traditional Knowledge and Climate Change Initiatives, which was developed by a group of Indigenous people. What is traditional knowledge, and is there a story you can share on how traditional knowledge was vital for identifying impacts in the landscapes as a result of climate change? Thank you. It's funny because when we, we developed the guidelines, I'll just call them the guidelines. So the guidelines came about when I was sitting on an advisory committee for the Department of Interior. Uh, Dr. Gary Morishima and I from the Quinault Nation recognized that these scientists didn't understand what traditional knowledge was, so we decided to develop a subgroup. And so when we did that, that's when we brought in all the other authors. And it was amazing because we worked with about 20 indigenous leaders throughout the country. This was early on. This was 2014, 2015. And so we really wanted the scientists to be able to understand what traditional knowledges were because a lot of times tribes were not being funded because they wanted to use TKs, traditional knowledges, instead of the Western science or a combination of both. And they weren't being funded because of that. And so we wanted that to end. And so we developed these guidelines to help everyone understand what they were and to allow tribes to continue to get funding. So for me, traditional knowledge is that there's no particular definition. There's not a bright line rule, if you will, but there are guidances that you think about when you're thinking about traditional knowledges. So they have to be valuable, significant, and valid means of thought on their own right. So you don't need anyone to acknowledge it, especially Western science to acknowledge it and say, yeah, that's correct. I believe they're innate in all of us, whether we're indigenous or not. I believe they're innate rights of being. They're methods that you define, you value, you validate your own knowledge. So these come from, you know, your ancestors who passed them down all the way to you. And many times people think that there are these empirical knowledges, but it could be recipes, it could be songs, it could be a lullaby that has passed down. So for me, I always do a little exercise with students that I'm teaching and then I have them define it because for me, once you define it in your own terms, no one can change that definition because they're your traditional knowledge. That is your knowledge and it's your right to keep it. So I always say, now that you defined it, especially for tribes, if once you define it, don't let anyone change your definition. Don't let anyone say, no, that's not really right. Don't let anyone change it because that's your knowledge and those should be protected according to your customs, your laws, and valued as much. Thank you. I think hearing your words, it speaks to the power of our lived experiences. And, you know, oftentimes with Western science, we don't really have ways to measure either how things impact us for the good or impact us in a bad way. And so I think this speaks to that, that we can't always measure everything, but we know it's there, you know, and we carry it with us. I was wondering if you had a story that you could tell us about, you know, maybe with one of the communities you work with of how they use traditional knowledge to identify their impacts to and their landscapes as a result of climate change. Well, I haven't asked anyone for their permission, so I'm just going to share one for my family. I think all traditional knowledge comes from, like I said, one of my grandmothers, Catherine Wallace, she was an herbalist. So we would walk around her house 
She's lived in a small community called Chilchimbito. So she would gather all these things. I remember in her closet, there were all these jars and coffee cans that were filled with all these amazing herbs. They weren't labeled. She knew all of them. And so as I got older and I wanted to walk around with my son, we noticed that a lot of these herbs were no longer in the areas that they used to grow because the drought in the Southwest, um, Chilchimbito is on the Navajo Nation. So there's what a 20-year drought that has been occurring now. So a lot of these herbs are not naturally growing in their areas that they used to be. So she was noticing that in Navajo, she would say, oh, those used to grow right there. And she would just stare at the spot and almost like she was mourning that they weren't coming back. And for me, I didn't really understand that at that moment. I didn't know that they were supposed to be there, of course. So really learning how to mix things I know simple, simple things, but she would have these herbs and medicines for herself and sometimes for relatives. And people would come to her and ask her for stuff. And so she had that gift. And just watching her from afar, I never really had the chance to learn that talent, but just admiring her from afar and just understanding that she knew how to heal herself. So that was a gift. And I see that in many other communities, the landscapes are changing so quickly that a lot of the places they used to gather medicinal medicines or anything like that are changing significantly. So the elders or the medicine people are being challenged. They're saying they're not there anymore. And so that's another issue that rapid climate change brings to people who are subsistence, who live off the earth. Those are things that we deal with. It not only impacts us physically, but it impacts us emotionally and spiritually because those are things we rely on. And so it can be harsh and it can be difficult at times. Thank you so much for sharing your story and the teachings from your grandmother. I think when I was doing my dissertation, you know, as an outsider, um, you know, I'm Latina and my parents are from Mexico. And so even though I grew up in Arizona and they teach us in a very Western way about indigenous nations, they don't really do a good job at providing us with some of this, you know, what is in like our own surroundings. And so when I did my dissertation focusing on how the spill impacted the communities of the Navajo Nation, you know, a lot of the things that I learned on was hearing stories from the elders that were sharing that. And one of the things that would always come up in our community meetings was how we were all interconnected, right? And so, you know, due to climate change or our own doings, how the world is changing and how that impacts us. And then later on, you know, in the more classroom-based settings and conferences, one of the frameworks that I saw emerging around climate change was this idea of planetary health, that human health is interconnected with the natural world. But these ways of thinking to me, and to I think a lot of people, you know, they recognize that these are rooted in indigenous knowledge. And so what can a non-Indigenous people do to honor and support Indigenous ways of knowing? That's a great question. You know, in the guidelines that I spoke about, there's a way to engage with tribal or Indigenous peoples, and you have to be very careful, especially when you're dealing with traditional knowledges. So in the guidelines, they have principles that we work through to make sure each side understands the protocols. One, to understand when and how to talk about different things and how to protect the knowledges. Understand that if one side says no, you leave it at no, you don't go any further. So there's a respect there. So the guidelines really work through how you partner respectfully so that you are not overstepping each other's boundaries. Because when you're going into traditional knowledge sharing, that's when it gets really, really critical about how protective you must be. 
As far as what you can share from one another, I think one of the things that I always teach and I believe in sincerely is that for 500 plus years, the tribes in the United States, the indigenous peoples in the United States have been enduring constant change. So constantly changing from contact then we went into the wars, then we went into removal, then we went into boarding school era, all these different things that the federal government imposed on our peoples here in the United States. And every single time we've had to change and adapt. And the resilience, I believe, for me, is already built in our DNA. Like, we already know what hard times are. So really saying, okay, this is another change. All right. We know how to adapt quickly mentally and physically it may take a little longer, but mentally and spiritually, we're like, okay, we need to make this change. We already know that no matter what, we will survive. That's already ingrained in us. So it's not that fear factor that may come is not as huge there's already, we're already ingrained to be in a state of change. So what non-Indigenous people can learn from us is that same sense of adapting, that same sense of staying calm under fire, basically, and knowing that in the end, that we will continue to survive no matter what. So that's something I always teach because that was taught to me that no matter what happens, you will survive. You will continue to move the line forward. You will continue to teach your language. You will continue to teach our traditions and you will be okay. And will it be easy? Probably not. It really hasn't been for centuries. But I know that if I can still speak my language, stand on my lands, wear my regalia, and now teach my son those same things, I am doing what my ancestors have put me here to do. Thank you for your words and the teachings that we're having during this conversation. As we mentioned, you are the executive director at the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals, or ITEP, which began with Virgil Masaiva, a Hopi knowledge holder who was unable to see the sacred mountains as he prayed due to worsening air pollution. As your organization has always been led by Indigenous people for Indigenous people, how has this ensured that the decision-making remains with local communities? And what can you tell us about the role that relationships and accountability play when striving for action-oriented solutions? The original director, Virgil Masaiswa, was a Hopi gentleman, and his elders actually are the ones who prompted him to do something about the air quality between the Hopi Nation, which is about 90 miles due northeast of Flagstaff, which is San Francisco Peaks, which are sacred to them. Like I said, there's 11 tribes in this region. And so... He went to Northern Arizona University and met with Dr. William Auberly, who was a dean at the time, who continues to be on the ITEP board. He's a co-founder. So Mr. Masaiswa and Mr. Bill Auberly co-developed ITEP under air quality issues. So that was the cornerstone of air quality. And slowly they began helping tribes. Then they went to the Environmental Protection Agency and met with them and they developed what would be training courses for tribes in helping tribes to monitor, help them develop air quality solutions for their communities. 
it began with the request of elders. From that, the second director, the late Cal Sisiwa, who's from Zuni Nation, he brought in the element of students. So both of those gentlemen really paved the way to building ITEP into the program it is today. But the key factor, and it's one of our values at ITEP, is to listen to tribes. You have to listen to what they need in order to continue to build your program. So in every course, and we have around 100 courses a year, we have four conferences a year. There's so many things that we put out. We always evaluate how the participants from all over the country, how they like the course, what they didn't like about the course. And then we also meet with tribal partnerships. I come from a law background, so I really wanted to work on policy issues. So we began working with the tribal partnership groups. These are your National Tribal Water Council and National Tribal Air Association. And now we oversee five, I think, of the eight tribal partnership groups. And these are your top environmental professionals who sit on these partnership groups and advise the EPA. So with them as well, we ask them, how can we serve you better? They evaluate everything that we do to serve them better. So again, it's that constant listening of saying, okay, what do we need to do in five years? What do we need to do in 10 years? What's on the ground important today? How do we shift everything? So it comes from a serving heart. You know, you have to adjust as the tribes need us to adjust. Thank you for that. I've always admired hearing about ITEP's work, but particularly how that land-grant university, NEU, was really willing to let ITEP lead in this area. And I think now they also have a cultural center where students could gather and use it as a space in that area of their studies. Yeah, Northern Arizona University, it was about 10 years ago when they constructed the Native American Culture Center on campus. It's a beautiful, it's almost like a museum. It's stunning. It sits in the Office of Native American Initiatives and ITEP sits under ONE Office of Native American Initiatives. So we have and we continue to, in pre-COVID days, host a lot of our courses at the Cultural Center or a lot of our events at the Cultural Center. So as they call it, it's a home away from home. It's where everyone gathers for cultural events, food, see each other. And it's important because when you leave your home as a college student, you want somewhere to call home and to see everyone. So it combines a lot of different cultures there. So it's a beautiful space. And these discussions of education and respect and passing on knowledge and climate discussion, we often hear, you know, this focus on the youth. But ITEP has really been a leader in advocating for intergenerational knowledge. What does it look like and what other areas of intergenerational knowledge are you adding to some of the courses available? So for the last 23 years, one of my managers, Mansell Nelson, has really led the effort to incorporate and train and inspire the youth to get involved with STEM, you know, your science, technology, engineering, and mathematics topic areas. And it was really around air quality, but it expanded because he was a teacher on a reservation school in Tuba City. And so he noticed that hands-on efforts work the best with Native students. And so he then incorporated incorporated the mostly Native students at Northern Arizona University, the college students. We would hire them, then he would train them, then he would take them into Native schools, and then he would give a course on some STEM-related topic. For me, this would have been amazing because I never saw anyone in college other than my siblings before I went to college. For a young Native American 
youth on their reservation to see a college student come in and teach them and to inspire them in one of these related fields. The only thing they need to say is they can do it, I can do it. That's the whole motto, whatever you decide to major in. Just get them to that point would be amazing. And so we are doing from kindergarten all the way to college. You know, we hire students to work with us in all of our programs and we work with and we have an internship program to really get them ready to go out into the professional world. So you know, this program has grown for the youth over the years and we're really excited about it. I think before the pandemic, we served 22,000 Native students in 2019. So we get out there and we really work with the students. When we started doing the intergenerational work is when we started some of our conferences. We started inviting elders and we started inviting the youth to prepare for their own track in a conference. Take, for example, 2020, the National Tribal and Indigenous Climate Conference. There was a track just for the youth and for the elders. <laughs> None of us midlifers could be in there with them. And they did whatever they wanted. And it became one of the best tracks because it was just the youth and the elders speaking to one another, asking one another questions, laughing about different things, mostly technology. And so it was really inspirational just to let them have that space together. And we've learned from that and we've continued to do that. We have a conference coming up on air quality and we've done the same thing. Our conference is celebration of 50 years of the Clean Air Act and also the traditional knowledges that will take us into the future. So it's a combined, it's taking your technical side, your air quality issues, but also really infusing that intergenerational together. Because it's online, we ask for a lot of elders and youth to interview one another or to ask questions of one another and to incorporate that into the conference. So that's really been a move we've listened to and we've really tried to incorporate in mostly all of our trainings. On the training side, we always have an elder come in and hopefully a youth come in as well. So it's both. So it's exciting to see it expand. It's exciting to see what we can do in the future to make stronger alliances between the two. And I always believe you should have a mentor. For me, I have my mentors, but I should always, as a professional, I should always be menteeing someone else. So it's a triangle. You should always be mentoring one another and being mentored yourself. So when I don't have a mentee, I start looking for people I'm like, hey, you, whether you want me to mentor you or not, I will mentor you. So always looking to the past and always planning for the future is an important part of ITEP and my own personal motto. I have definitely learned a lot from what you were talking about, some of the peer or student-to-student mentee roles that we play. And yeah, some of my favorite experiences have been being able to mentor students that you know, are from a similar background or want to do some of this type of work in, in environmental justice and climate change and working alongside. I've always said, as you talked about, that I've probably learned just as much as they do for me. <laughs> and zoning into some of the technology you know, with with some of these new apps that have come out, really seeing some of them talking about, you know, teachings by grandma and teachings by grandpa. I really love those types of technology out there because it really gets at, you know, us spending time with our elders and learning from them, but them also learning like, you know, what is this new app? What is this? What is that? And I think that's probably a very beautiful way of learning, right? This hands-on method that ITEPS has been such a great leader in. Particularly with ITEP, you've worked with, I think this percentage is probably higher now, but you've worked with over 95% of the 573 tribes in Alaskan Native villages nationwide. What are some of the unique challenges 
that indigenous nations face dealing with air pollution. And can you tell us how your American Indian Air Quality Training Program has been a leader in building capacity within tribes for their own air quality management? Next year, ITEP will be serving 30 years in the field. I always tease my staff because like the last 5% of the tribes we have not served are mostly Alaskan native villages that don't have environmental programs. They're so small, they don't have environmental programs. So we're just like, we'll just go one summer, live in the bush and serve all those and get to them, you know? So that would be a dream. As far as the American Indian Air Quality Training Program, now that took me a while to learn, but it's the cornerstone of ITEP. And it began really with listening to tribes and what they needed. Most of the tribes were contemplating how do I really need air quality program? So one of the things we developed was the Tribal Air Monitoring Support TAMS Center, and that's in Las Vegas, and it's headquartered with EPA there. And so they are a technical arm. So what we have there as well is we have an equipment loan program. So say a tribe is not really sure if they want to develop a full-blown air quality program. They don't know if they have any problems. So they'll borrow monitoring equipment. We will train them. We will help troubleshoot them. We will go into the field and give them professional assistance to monitor. And then we have our data side because you generate a lot of data once you start monitoring. How do you develop a QAP, uh, quality assurance plan? How do you then be loaded into the national system? So once you decide to start at a program, so there's all these steps because most tribes, they're rural. Unless there's a visible source, they don't know if they have problems. Or unless you're living by a municipality, like in Phoenix, there's, I believe, four tribes that live right around the Phoenix metropolitan area. So you have to monitor because air quality, there's no boundaries to them. So a lot of tribes were in that phase of, do I really need to monitor? And so we help them get online, then we help them get the equipment, we train them, then we help develop their data processes. And then really looking at where they were. Some tribes didn't have air quality issues, so they didn't go into the monitoring. But a lot of tribes found out that they had traceable issues that they couldn't figure out where they were coming from. So we helped them find and develop an air quality program. And then we helped them develop their codes, you know, so they could enforce a lot of those issues, whether it was outside or whether it was the constant problem of trash burning within reservation lands, always an issue. Up in Alaska, you are looking at road dust that because a lot of the roads on tribal territories or village territories are unpaved. So you have a lot of road dust that contributes to air quality issues. There's issues around radon that you have to also look and test for. And you can't taste it, smell it. So those are some of the issues that impact air quality. Those are all ambient or outdoor issues. You then go inside the house because so many people in rural communities still burn coal and wood to keep their houses warm. You have a lot of indoor air quality issues as well. And that has become a really big issue in the last five years, really looking at wood stove change out systems with 
that the federal government is assisting with and how that impacts tribes and really trying to teach, especially in the age of COVID, to circulate your air, to get clean air in your house. What are some of the chemicals you shouldn't be using in the house? What are some of the other issues that really contribute to air quality, smoking in the house? So those are all things that tribes deal with up in Alaska because it's so cold. Getting fresh air in the house, circulating the air to allow fresh air in the house. It's a huge issue up there. Mold is a big issue. In more wetter regions of the United States, tribes deal with those as well. So you name the element. And because we work from Barrow, Alaska to Maine, to California, to Florida, you know, we're dealing with all the different issues. And so the team at ITEP has to really grow their expertise in order to help. And the EPA and tribal professionals from all over these regions really step up to help us. And we work collaboratively with them so that we understand when we go to Alaska, these are the issues we're going to address. And um, we really build a course around it and we build a mentorship around it. So a three or four day course will allow the young, fresh, brand new employee to be partnered with a seasoned tribal professional. So they're in the same region. They're dealing with the same issues. They can mentor one another, help one another. Those are a lot of the air quality issues that we're dealing with nationally. And so it's been an honor to look and work with not only the federal agencies, but also the tribal professionals who we also ask to help with our training courses. Thank you. And really what an amazing program ITEP, right? This like true collaborative partnership and not only looking at the culturally respectful education component and air quality, but also these policy changes that are needed to reduce that air quality. I remember when I attended the 2018 Tribal Lands and Environment Forum, which is one of the conferences put on by ITEP, I remember not seeing the sun, right, which gets at the, what you were talking about, the visibility of air pollution. And I remember it was in Spokane, right, and there was all these wildfires affecting the area. Now it seems, or at least I've noticed that these seem to have become more prevalent. Has the number of tribes requesting research and assistance in this area increased? And what does that process look like for tribes wishing to partner with ITEP? Thank you for bringing that up. Yes, Spokane, I think there were 17 fires around the Spokane region during that conference, and it was literally brown the whole week. And instead of being outside, what we normally used to do, we are all in the conference center trying to breathe clean air. But tribes have really stepped up to look at forest management and forest fires and using it almost, some say, as a medicine, because the overgrowth of forest in the last what, 50 years, the policy management have not allowed tribes to use their traditional knowledge in fire burning. And so those are slowly coming back. I think federal agencies and state agencies are more willing to accept the tribal perspective on how to use fire as a method to protect from the huge fires that could happen. So that's one area that we at ITEP have really relied on our tribal partnerships. The Coesville tribe from up north really have lead. One of the leaders up there, he's really led the way to help train all the other tribes and help also if there's a fire in the region, really help monitor the air quality and help get people, mostly elders or vulnerable community members into a safe spot where they have fresh air, clean air until the fire has passed or until the smokes have passed. 
you're correct. It is becoming more and more prevalent because of the drier regions within the United States. And unfortunately, seeing a lot of those forests decimated, then come the floods, then you have water quality issues of everything, you know, and dealing with all those issues and really being at the front lines and asking the tribes, how do we support you? And some of the policy issues that come through are through the tribal partnership groups. These are the National Tribal Air Associations, one of the strongest partnership groups, really speak to the advances that tribes are making in these arenas and areas of air quality and how to protect and how do we use our own knowledge and our own sovereignty to protect our communities. You mentioned indigenous sovereignty, and one of the discussions that has emerged is that to uphold indigenous rights, indigenous people have a right to govern their own data, which hadn't always been the case. One of your newest training courses focuses on data management through the Virtual Data Academy and Conference. Sometimes when people think of data, you know, they might just think of numbers, but what the Navajo Nation partners taught me is that data doesn't always mean just numbers. You know, I wonder if you can share a little bit about what does data mean to you and you know, specifically to ITEP when working with some of these communities? Because we work with so much data, the EPA asked us if we could help with the tribes and exchange network. So any monitoring that you do, that's data. That's data collected, whether you're monitoring your air, your water, your land issues. And then if you want to put them in what are called nodes or the system that collects data on a national level, that's a whole nother process. And then how do you do it with quality assurance, making sure everything's the same and everything's done to an expertise level that's defensible. So those are all issues that's one of our newest partnership groups. It's been in existence for about five years, but they're really growing and really being able to train tribes to say, this is our data. We want to protect it in these ways. We want to use our cultural resources and our own laws to protect our data from being exposed or being used in a way we don't want it to be used based Basically, that's what it comes down to. And for me, that goes to another level, another tier of sovereignty. I work with the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, out of the United Nations, and then protecting traditional knowledges. They're developing a new treaty that will deal with traditional knowledges and to deal with those types of systems. It can be controversial because how you protect your traditional knowledge or any of your data should be up to the tribe. Intellectual property attorneys from across the world, I went to a, a workshop there, were questioning me on why we should not infuse or give all the information from tribes to these data banks to protect them. And I said, for centuries, from time immemorial, my people have taught me how to protect traditional knowledges. Let's talk about that. And they said, how? And I said, I work with medicine people. I work with the Dinehatafi Association. And I know I'm not supposed to be in the room. That's just trained. That's just innate in me when they're talking about things that I'm not supposed to know about. And I said, if there were any breach, my family, my community would keep me accountable. That's where it comes from. That's the system we have in place and it has worked. And then when it comes to data sovereignty, when it comes to the information, I feel the same way. If the tribe does not want to release the data, that's up to them. They have systems in place. That is up to them. They are a sovereign nation. Respect it. And so this is a very fast growing field. And as we're learning new things, we're really, really thankful for the governance council that oversees this tribal partnership group and just all the work they have been doing to 
train tribes to build capacity and then also to train tribes on developing their own rights or developing their own ways of protection. Often when I've had invites to talk about some of my dissertation work, people are surprised that I tell them I will have to get back to them because I have to first seek permission from the Navajo Nation Human Research Review Board, who are the ones that oversee studies dealing with humans on the Navajo Nation, and having to explain to them that this might be the area I'm working for as a researcher, but these stories don't belong to me. And always remembering that and respecting that, I think, is something that needs to be, be told out there to more Western science thinkers. Um, researchers that don't necessarily have these teachings in them. Yeah, that was a huge teaching point with the climate change adaptation plans. Because climate change is holistic thinking instead of water quality, air quality, land issues, it's holistic thinking. You're thinking about the entire thing. They would want to include spiritual aspects, prayers, songs, sacred sites. And one of the things we had to really train them on is just how do you protect those types of knowledges when you're being federally funded, when you have a deliverable to turn in your adaptation plan, and how do you protect those? It's constantly coming up. And that's why I really work with intellectual property attorneys and what's the latest that we can do to protect in a way that will be respectful to tribes, but also not expose them. I know we're getting towards the end of this podcast and kind of bringing it back to remembering the past and looking forward to the future. When it comes to achieving climate justice, what policies or processes do you see are needed to help move us forward? For me, environmental justice has always been about equity, looking at where there's equity. In the climate arena, you look at national climate assessments. These are the official reports that go to Congress. And I've been saying this over and over again. So if you're out there listening to this again, this is what I say a lot. You look at National Climate Assessment 3 and 4. If you look in the chapters and you look down, it started in 3, and they come out every four years. And so you look in National Climate Assessment 3, and you look down, I think it was chapter 12, it says tribes and indigenous peoples. And you look at all the other chapters, and there's no other race that is mentioned in that assessment. And then in that assessment, it says that tribes and indigenous peoples are disproportionately impacted by climate change impacts because we live a subsistence lifestyle. That's the summary of what it's saying. And so I say, okay, now we're on the map. You know, now someone is telling, all your scientists in the United States are telling you that tribes are at the front lines and being disproportionately impacted. And if you take the amount of funding that goes to tribes, 574 nations, and you look at the other chapters and how they're funding those chapters, there's a disproportionate inequity there. And I always bring that up because I just feel like tribes who have over 370 treaties throughout the United States signed as sovereign nations, they should receive more services. They should receive more help from our federal and state governments because one, you've already said we're impacted and two, we have treaties and executive orders and all the other agreements. Every parcel of land that's in the United States was once stewarded by an indigenous people, an indigenous people then coming a tribe. So there are some rights there that on an equity base need to be looked at and need to be respected. I worked with the Northwest tribes on what's called the Climate Action Plan. A lot of us in the field, about 40 of us, got together in the fall and developed a Climate Action Plan, preparing for a new administration should it come. And so this Climate Action Plan lays out 12 pillars 
of what the federal government can do to help tribes in this arena. And one of the things we asked for, and what was happening on the Obama administration was they had a task force that had all the leads in the federal cabinets that would deal specifically with tribes and climate change because the impact was so great. And so we're hoping that this administration resurrects that task force and really pushes forward to helping tribes in this arena because we are on the front lines and we are resilient, but we do need support. Hopefully for those that listen, you know, they definitely take your words in their own work and remember to listen to Indigenous people, because in my opinion, you have and will always be leaders. And as non-Indigenous people, definitely need to take a step back and let you lead. We may not be the loudest voice in the room, but we do listen and we do bring a lot of knowledge that can be shared. And I believe it's open to be shared as long as people are respectful and use it in a good way. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie, for your time and the lessons and the stories you shared with us today. And hopefully these will serve many people in the future um, under endeavors with climate change. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for your very thoughtful questions. I can tell that you've put a lot of thought and research what we do at ITEP. And so thank you for your work and thank you, Shazad, for the opportunity to just talk about issues that I am passionate about and giving us a safe space that we can share this and that we can help grow from one another. When I begin these talks, I always close my eyes and ask for my ancestors to speak through me. So what you're hearing today is what my ancestors would want you to learn. So thank you very much. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Anne-Marie Chistuli, and our interviewer, Yosira Ornelis Van Horn, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.